1: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today
2: on the program, I'm pleased to welcome the return of silver producer, Silvercore Metals, to the Ellis Market Report. Silvercore trades in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SVM. Silvercore has very compelling earning results. 2016. I'll have a conversation with their Vice President of Corporate Development Gordon Neal. Ken Berry will join us. He's the President of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading as NEE on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as NHBCF. Northern Vertex is planning to go into full commercial production of their Moss Mine in the fall of this year. James McDonald of Kootenay Silver joins me at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference to update us on the La Cigarra Silver Project, showing high grades in Chihuahua State, Mexico. Kootenay Silver trades as KOOYF in the U.S. and KTN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Patrick Highsmith, the president of Pure Energy Minerals, will update us on a recent acquisition target for a lithium project in Argentina, adding to their portfolio that includes their Clayton Valley Lithium Brine Project in Nevada and potential offtake agreement with Tesla Motors. Pure Energy trades as PE on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as PEMIF. George Sanders of Goldcliffe Resource Corporation visits with me to discuss the company's Pine Grove project, also in mining-friendly Nevada. Goldcliffe trades as GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange and as GCFF in the U.S. Eric Beer, the president and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, updates us with regards to their Las Chispas project in Sonora State, Mexico. Silvercrest trades as SIF on the TSX Venture Exchange and as SBCMF in the United States. And Peter Dastler, president of Canalaska Uranium, joins us. Canalaska trades as CVV on the TSX Venture Exchange and CVVUF. We'll speak with Peter at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, updating us on all things uranium and the company's projects in the Athabasca and Saskatchewan, Canada. Let's begin the program. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SVM. Silvercore is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential, and the ability to grow organically. The company just reported net income attributable to equity shareholders of $30.2 million or 18 cents per share, up 284% compared with net income attributable to equity shareholders of $7.9 million or 5 cents per share in the prior year period. Gordon, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Give us a brief history of the company, if you don't mind, including its inception.
3: Silver Corp was founded by the current uh, chairman and CEO Rui Fang in 2005. He actually built the company fairly quickly. By 2007, all the assets are in China in northern China and in southern China they've got two operations in the Ying District and the Guangdong District and by 2007 Rui had actually started to generate revenue for the company which I found compelling because for a company to start out in 2005 and actually be generating revenue for shareholders within two years it's a high grade story which again appeals to me and this is why I joined the company it's been going ever since and been profitable most years the silver price has obviously affected that but it's been a profitable organization. 2005 to 2017 it's going strong.
2: Let's talk about the company's just released earnings results.
3: We're quite proud of them. Actually, last four quarters have been quite good. We had revenue of 130 million compared to 88 million the year at the same period last year. Net income was 30 million, and a year ago it was 8 million. So that's a 284 percent increase. So those kinds of numbers are numbers that I think investors can get their heads around. We're also, I'd say, we're the lowest cost and highest margin producer in our space at negative five dollars and 48 cents to produce an ounce of silver. No one's. T- Touching us there and those margins at those numbers, it gives us a 58% gross profit margin. Again, grade and metal prices make a big difference for companies like us.
2: How do you account for the huge jump in revenue last year and what's the plan going forward in 2017? Could we see even greater results?
3: Well, we're slated to have our guidance that we gave out has some growing silver and base metals, particularly silver. Yes, we do see that kind of growth sustaining. Of course, metal prices are going to have a big impact on that. We're hopeful that the metal prices will hit the status quo or give us a little bit of, of joy. We're the kind of company, when you have grade, if the metal prices and, and silver go up a dollar or two, it, it makes a tremendous impact on the bottom line. So yes, going forward, we're looking at an increased price productivity, production, and increased revenues and profits.
2: I think we can extrapolate the answer from what we've already covered, but with regard to low-cost production and the company's history of that, how is the company positioned alongside its peers as a potential investment opportunity?
3: As I said earlier, at $5.48 to produce, an ounce of silver and hauling sustaining costs of $3.96 over a nine-month period year over year. We're at the front of the pack. When you look at this space, the person that's closest to us is producing at $8 an ounce. So it's about grade and it's about the ability to be able to produce cheaply and efficiently. There was a time when we had our head grade dropped in 2014. We had some issues. Management focus was distracted, but since 2015, the head grades has gone back up to 300 grams per ton. It allows us to produce at a good rate, a good cash cost.
2: Do you believe, Gordon, that we're going to see the highs in the past for silver stocks, even with regard to your own company, Silvercorp Metals?
3: I think that early on in the cycle, in the early 2000s, early on, it was a unique situation where all metals were rising at the same time. Rising tide lifts all boats. It was one of the a unique situations where I hadn't seen it before in the industry where all those metals rose at the same time, and it gave a lot of lift. And of course, it was Driven by growth in China and the BRIC and those countries and the United States. But I'm not certain that we will see that kind of a growth cycle again. Having said that, today is much better than it was a year ago or a year and a half ago in this industry. It was in the doldrums. We're getting lifts in the marketplace, we're getting growth in some sectors, and it's translating into the lifted metal prices, which we were long overdue.
2: Why is Silvercorp focused specifically on China? Of course, that's where the resource is, but why China as a whole?
3: The principal chief executive officer and chairman is a Chinese-born Canadian citizen, and he knows China well. And there's lots of opportunities in China. It was underdeveloped. There wasn't a lot of capital that flowed into China early on in that cycle I mentioned earlier. And he took advantage of that in the early 2000s. So there was lots of opportunity to consolidate the, the government, recognize that it needed outside capital to develop the industry, and he was right there. And what that's done is allow him to be at the forefront with the government in terms of understanding how it works, the taxation, the policies, the permitting. Once you're in there, it's really important to sort of stay the course there. and There's more opportunities for the company in
2: China. I think the obvious question that investors might be interested in with regard to Silvercorp is, does Donald Trump being in the White House affect your operations Giving his protectionist trade policies or possible posturing toward China?
3: The answer to that is no, and the reason is all of the production that we produce in silver and in base metal stays in China and is actually purchased in China. It doesn't get shipped out of the country. If there's a metals war between two countries for whatever reason, it wouldn't affect us at all.
2: Let's take a look at the extended management team.
3: As I said, Dr. Rui Feng founded the company. He's born in China, but went to school in Canada, University of Saskatchewan. He's a geologist. He really understands mining and mining practices. What I really like about Rui is his entrepreneurial spirit. He understood quickly that finding high-grade ore and taking it to a smelter in China, and they looked at it, and they said, where did you get this? And he basically said, I run a property that has this level of grade, and they immediately, because it was so high-grade and they could use it for blending, to give us some more." and that's how he got into production. So instead of going to the capital markets Like most exploration or early-stage companies do and diluting shareholders, he actually generated revenue and mitigated against that kind of dilution for shareholders, which I respect him for. CFO is Derek Liu. He's been in the mining business for 20 years, knows it well and has done a lot of work in finance in the area. I come from a background of corporate finance and investor relations. Used to own the second largest I.R. firm in Canada. And I love the silver space because I was a VP of Corporate Development for Mag Silver. I'm proud of that because it's quite a success story as well as well as this one is a good success story. Lauren Waldman, Corporate Secretary, he's been very helpful here in terms of helping guide the company through some trying time. As had a short seller that came after it in 2011. and That was the management distraction I I alluded to earlier, and the company was ultimately vindicated, and that's what allowed them to go back and look for more grade and for more tons.
2: Considering all of what I just heard, what specifically drew you to Silvercorp? Why did you join the team?
3: Pretty easy. Grade and entrepreneurship. I mean, I've owned my own businesses, but first of all, grade. I mean, I learned early on, as I said with MagSilver, that grade is king. And to make things work and to make things economic and to give yourself some breathing room and to give shareholders some room to make money, grade is very important. The vagaries of the marketplace can be mitigated to some degree with grade.
2: So it's grade, 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 or go home, I guess.
3: But I also got to say that I hit it off with uh, with management here. They really run a very tight ship. The kind of mining that they do at Silver Corp is narrow vein mining, high-grade narrow vein. And so it's really important to understand how to minimize dilution. And Rui Feng knows how to get his crew to minimize dilution, and he's done a great job at it. And so he knows how to run a good, tight operation. This is one of the few silver stories actually makes money regularly in this space.
2: Gordon, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I look forward to many more conversations in the coming months. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SBM. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com.
1: Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
2: Join me for a conversation with Ken Berry, the President and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchanges NEE Northern Vertex Mining Corporation is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine gold silver project located in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona Over the past 6 years the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold silver production and welcome back to the program
4: Ellis thank you very much for having me
2: If you wouldn't mind, please give our audience a brief overview of the Northern Vertex story.
4: Our story is really about the moss mine in Arizona, and Northern Vertex has been successful since 2011 at proving up a resource. We've drilled over 470 drill holes on this property. All up in total, there's probably close to, I think, 750 or 800 drill holes on this resource. We've established a feasibility. We've conducted a test mining pilot plant that produced 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver. We completed a feasibility which demonstrated very robust numbers. We've got a 48% internal rate of return after tax, so that's exceptional for a mining property. And we also have an all-in sustaining cost of $662 per ounce. So what that says is if gold were to pull back from its current levels, even down to $1,000, we have a very strong project that would continue to push forward. If gold were to move in the 1500 or above, then, of course, the internal return, rate of return would climb as well so all in all we've got a strong project it's under construction we're also conducting additional exploration so we've been quite happy with the progress to date
2: and you're scheduled to go into production in the fall of 2017, this year, correct?
4: That's correct. Construction's underway now. We've got Daggerstorm doing the earthworks. We've got Goldern Associates looking at the heap leach pad. And we've got a number of other groups. M3, who is our engineering group. M3 is a very strong engineering group. Has been one of the leaders in the heap leach projects in North America. So we're happy to have a complete team behind us. And it's led by Dr. David Stone, who is our project construction manager for Northern Veritech.
2: Becoming a producing mine in the U.S. is no small feat, and in Arizona with a moss mine and Northern Vertex... We're almost there.
4: Well, we're one of the few companies that, since 2011, has really taken a project forward and advanced it to that doorstep of production, and we're very pleased with the progress. When others were shutting down and idle, we were raising capital and funding this project and moving it forward. We're really pleased with the way things have unfolded here for Northern Veritech.
2: It's been relatively inexpensive to build out this mine.
4: Well, in terms of a mining project, our capital expenditures are approximately $33 million, so so This is on the lower end for a mining project. We've invested over the last four or five years. Well, the company has raised over $52 million to date now. In terms of mining, it's not a large project, but it's very manageable and stands to be very profitable.
2: Tell me about the permitting process in northwestern Arizona.
4: Ellis, the permitting process for Northern Vertex was accomplished for the test mining facility, and we did that in just over about seven months. We were very happy with the process. We worked well with the regulatory agencies and now for the phase two commercial mining we've been successful at receiving pretty much all our permits we have them in hand right now there's a number of permits dating back to sort of a renewal of the test mining so to speak but most recently we had our air quality public hearing and it went through very smoothly we received our approval the next day we moved on to the stormwater prevention plan and the aquifer protection permit is one that we just put up our bond in the last few days for one $1.4 million. So all in all, we've got our permits in hand and we're very happy with the procedures and the process.
2: Let's talk about the contribution you're making locally by providing jobs.
4: Well, the town of Bullhead City has a population of about 35,000 people and our mine site is located just 20 minutes to the east. And this is unusual for a mining project to be located near a source of talented people that can step in and work with the company. And what's unique as well is our employees will be able to go home and sleep in their homes and be with their families each night. And this is something that really helps out with the retention of your employees. Mining projects often are in remote areas and the employees are away from their families and it's very stressful on them. In addition, we're just an hour and a half south of Las Vegas and about three and a half hours west of Phoenix. So in terms of inventory, we don't have to carry large collection of inventory that can often amount to 10 or $15 million worth of equipment sitting idle so we can have access to this inventory. As an example, our crushers and our conveyors, those orders have been placed and the manufacturing of that equipment is underway right now with a group called Goodfellow, which is only one hour north of us and about 30 minutes from Las Vegas. So we have easy access to the manufacturers and equipment suppliers. So we're pretty pleased about that. And that's a key reason why our capital expenditures are at that $33 million level and not much higher.
2: What's the share structure of Northern Vertex as we look at this as a potential investment value
4: we have approximately 100 million shares outstanding we've raised in excess of about 52 million dollars for the company many of our shareholders participated at higher levels through the development process in a challenging market we had done approximately 23 million dollars worth of financings between a dollar 15 and a dollar 25 we're currently sitting in around 40 to 50 cents and we think it's a tremendous opportunity for a company that has gone through the process of developing and is right on that doorstep of production and that's often where you see a lift in the valuation of a company so we're pretty pleased with where we're at and we think this is a tremendous opportunity
2: ken thanks so much for joining me again today i look forward to visiting the moss mine soon in bullhead city arizona
4: Ellis, thank you very much for having Northern Vertex and myself on. We're pleased with development, as we mentioned, and look forward to your visit to the mine site.
2: I've been speaking with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com,
1: and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on TuneIn Radio or iTunes. Resource stocks, gold, silver, rare earth elements, oil and gas stocks. Learn about them by going to our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a discussion with James McDonald, President and
2: CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra Silver Project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra Silver Projects in Sonora State, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile, highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico, and it carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. Kootenay Silver currently has two drill programs and progress in Mexico and a combined forty three one oh one silver asset base of over one hundred and forty million ounces of contained silver. Forward looking statements may be included going forward. Today is part of a series of sponsor company interviews. I'm speaking with Mr. McDonald at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Jim, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thank you, Ellis. Pleasure to be here. Last time we spoke, I think you were uh, underground or near your project, the La Cigarra project in Mexico. Uh, what's happened since then?
5: Well, I just got back from there last night, actually, and a lot of things. A lot's cooking down there. We made a new discovery on a, on the ram structure. Tested 400 meters of a 3,000 meter long structure. We hit silver in every single hole. So that's looking very promising. We've been picking that deposit apart, doing a lot of geologic work, relogging, remapping. The whole objective there is we think we can improve the current resource. We think we can constrain it, which means the grade could come up. Grade comes up, it becomes more economic. Latest news release out was on uh, metallurgy. We've done some uh, leach testing with a s- uh, process called the Silvox process, which is just a, a variation of uh, the tried and tested traditional leach process, and it's. Uh, showing that we could potentially get 7 to 14% higher recovery in a heap leach situation on the La Cigara deposit. That gives us a very interesting possibility to get that deposit into production with a much lower capital and operating cost.
2: Let's talk about some of your partners here. Who are some of the major shareholders?
5: Well, we got quite an interesting shareholder base. we got Core Mining, for example. we got Agnico Eagle, and then we got Pan American Silver, who came in with a large investment. On the, based on the Promontorio project that we optioned to them last year. What's the plan for the company going forward during the next 24 months, let's say? next 12 months is going to be basically drilling, doing this remodeling, resource estimate, new resource estimate in La Segara, and then going into a preliminary economic assessment. On the uh, Promontorio-Lenegra project, which is optioned to Pan American Silver, they're going to be back drilling. They'll be doing more metallurgical work. They'll be drilling some new additional targets as well, so they've got quite a strong budget for that project. So, in other words, a lot of work going on, a lot of news coming out in the next 12 months. You're fairly well financed for all the news flow that you're going to be generating. Yeah, we currently have uh, $6 million cash in the Treasury, and so we're well situated to move ahead on, on our programs for the year.
2: Now, we're here at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. What kind of sentiment have you been feeling when you've been greeting investors, potential investors, and other people in the same business as you?
5: Well, much improved over a year ago. We saw this market uh, bottoming probably 2015, 2016. And we saw the turn, what we believe is the turn last year about this time. So, th- this year, this show is, uh, there's a lot more people here much better attended. The feeling and the emotion and the, the sentiment here is, is very buoyant. Well, Jim, it's always a great pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Well, thank you. and look forward to doing it again.
2: I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as KOOYF in the U.S. and KTN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember,
1: all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here.
2: High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, president of Goldcliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Goldcliffe is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phased production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove, Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. George, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. With a great many mining companies, George, it's typically very expensive to explore, find, and identify a resource, build a mill, etc., the cost of finance and operation can be very expensive. You and several others in the sector have employed a pay to go strategy, on the other hand.
6: Absolutely. Not only, Ellis, the money involved, but the time. I wouldn't call most of the companies that do that mining companies. I would call them exploration companies, the ones that get to the point where they think they might have something. Maybe you could say they transition into a development company that's where we see ourselves at Goldcliff following this phase production model or old fashioned bootstrapping or as you say pay as you go it's not something that we've thought up ourselves or invented in fact it's the old fashioned style of mining in North America, indeed all over the Americas, sort of get some money back from something as quickly as possible and then reinvest that to see if you have a bigger, more established operation. And that's pretty much the way the business worked really up until the mid or late 1980s. And it was only after that that we became focused on ever expanding or growing our resource base And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing to do. The problem for the investor shareholder is that that process now from discovery to production, if you're quick, will take 12 to 15 years. You can't always time your good news with the market cycles, and so sometimes you're advancing your asset in a very positive way into a dead market. So as you say, the capital isn't available. The net result of that is as a major investor in your own company, you start out owning a serious number of shares of a not many shares issued company. And a decade later, you have hundreds of millions of shares and you don't really control the company anymore. You're not even a major shareholder and everybody's been diluted. This idea of focusing on smaller modest sized projects to get them to cash flow quickly or if you've got one that could turn into a bigger deal to focus on the starter zone, starter open pit, starter stope, underground, whatever it may be to get you to cash flow as quickly as possible and then build out from there. At the end of the day that style is going to give you a little bit of an advantage of arriving at where you want to be as a self-sustaining business without the mass of dilution.
2: Tell us about the inception of the Pine Grove property, adding it to your portfolio, and how it's panned out.
6: Goldcliffe started out the first couple of decades as one of these exploration companies on a project in BC, and we kept advancing it, and we kept adding value to it, but got ourselves in the post two thousand. And eight downturn. At the end of the day, we looked around and the share capital had gone from $50 million to $100 million. And earlier in 2016, in the middle of the year, we took advantage of the opportunity to acquire Pine Grove as we were looking to transition the company away from exploration and into near-term cash flow and development situation. This asset was really tailor-made for that strategy. We jumped on it. When we did that, we bit the bullet and consolidated the share capital. Now, starting with a new focus on a new asset, we have a very nice share structure, and we think that over the next year and a bit, as we advance this towards production, we're hoping that we can get into production with this thing, even with 100% equity financing, and still keep the share capital below, say, $75 At that point, have a uh, self-sustaining business.
2: I've been speaking with George Sanders, president. President of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange's SIL.B. Silvercrest Metals is a Vancouver-based precious metals exploration company that is focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals districts. Their Las Chispas mine in Sonora State, Mexico, promises to be a potentially highly prolific play. Eric, welcome back to the program.
7: Ellis, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure.
2: Late in 2016, you announced you were beginning the Phase Two drill surface and underground drill program. What's the current status of that?
7: We actually started it in December. We did do some work over the holidays while everybody else was resting. We were working at Los Chispas. The uh, Phase Two program is in two parts part one is the drill program, which is about between six to 10,000 meters, depending on success this year. And that's both surface and underground drilling. We, so far to date, have completed about 2,000 meters of that. Most of that's the surface. Of that 2,000, there's a couple hundred meters of underground drilling at Bobby Canora currently. Looking for our first result for Phase 2 drilling to come out sometime in February. I don't like to put one or two holes out. We're going to put these things out in five to ten hole kind of batches as they come through the assays. A drilling is focusing on establishing our maiden resource later this year. Also drill testing the Bobby target, which historically was the largest producer in the district. This district has laid dormant for the last 75 years and has never been drilled as far as we can tell. So we're the first to drill in this district.
2: How do we have these historic targets that no one is touched and you're about to find out what's in the ground there.
7: Well, it's uh, been the historic industry standard that you drive on grade and you drill for structure. That's what they did historically. The discovery at Las Chispas was made in 1640 by a Spanish general. A lot of unrest with Apaches up until the uh, late 1800s. There was some mining that was done in the district before the late 1800s, and it was driven on grade, nothing else. We found no evidence of any drill collars on surface or underground. Usually you go into these districts and there's a pile of core sitting somewhere. There's no evidence of any of that. So again, drive on grade and drill on structure. They weren't too concerned with structure.
2: What is the second part of that phase two program?
7: The second part of the phase two program, the critical part, is the ongoing underground rehabilitation of approximately 11.5 kilometers of old workings. So we're reestablishing these workings and we're getting critical data geologically and from a Potential mineability of high grade underground. The mineralization, as far as we know, and from a mineability standpoint, had a historic cutoff grade of somewhere between 500 to 1 kilo of silver. There's quite a bit of material that still remains intact underground in the 300 to 500 grams per ton silver plus gold. We're excited about seeing the results from that from underground, and we'll continue probably on a monthly basis basis to refresh our rehabilitation with new access and some more results as they come out. Not only do we have the underground results coming out, but you'll see just more of this underground rehabilitation. This rehabilitation, just to remind the general public, is exploration rehabilitation. From a mining standpoint, there need to be more development. You could actually use a lot of the underground workings right now for that development, if you wished. So just keep that in mind. We've considered that there's also quite a bit of lower grade material associated with the underground workings and some wider zones. There may be potential for some bulk lower grade in the future. We'll see how that works out in our design.
2: The lower grades can still be substantial, right?
7: And uniquely, too, most of these districts I've been to around in Mexico in my career, and the dumps and the tailings have usually been scavenged and taken to smelters in the past, and Los Chispas, most of that stuff still remains. So there's quite a bit of high-grade material that's actually just sitting on the surface right now that could be potentially reprocessed in the future.
2: I've been speaking with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the US as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SIL.B. Listen to this segment again on our website ellismartreport.com or listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.B, And in the U.S. as PEMIF, Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program, and Happy New Year!
8: Happy New Year to you, Ellis. Thank you for having me.
2: Let's recap some of the successes for Pure Energy over the last year and look ahead to what we think 2017 is going to look like.
8: You know, it's a great time to recap a year. We've just had a big year at Pure Energy Minerals. We got a lot done. We drilled six holes on our Clayton Valley South project. We conducted pumping tests. We even completed a mini pilot plant where we actually had a proof of concept of this new technology that we hope will allow us to extract lithium without those huge, unsightly evaporations.
2: Patrick, even though we've been covering the lithium space for quite some time now, the general public is not fully up to speed yet as far as the relevance of the mineral beyond perhaps electric or hybrid cars, lithium-ion batteries, and things of that nature. That certainly is beginning to change, of course, but really energy storage and energy delivery as a whole is certainly the evolving story moving forward in my opinion. As I look around my studio here, I see nothing but wires connecting one device to another and a flurry of electrical plug-ins on two massive power strips. We live in a society now that wants to be wireless.
8: You know, the lithium story came on the scene for resource investors probably in about 2009, Ellis. As you and I have discussed, I was one of the founders of Lithium One back then. It was palpable that things were going to change, and we think we made some good moves back then to go make some big lithium discoveries and alert the market to it, and we certainly got some traction and and had a good story there for our investors in Lithium One. However, we were early. Frankly, the lithium battery industry was still small, the real applications of what this high-powered metal could do were still relatively few and limited in scope, whereas today, as investors are becoming more aware and hearing the word lithium on an almost daily basis, electric vehicles rolling out, growing at 60% year over year, I think you're right. I think lithium's role in the new economy, but also in the new grid, the new way we manage our energy, is just really coming into people's visibility, and and there's still a lot to learn about it, for sure.
2: Do you believe that this energy grid, one that's actually over 100 years old, if the system were to crash today and some sort of major blackout were to take hold, there's no energy storage system in place or any real measure of self-sufficiency to power America for any period of time, really. How important is energy storage via lithium and how important will it be in the future? You know, it is hard to believe how
8: dependent we are locked in position, really in stationary position with our grid. And, you know, you and I have already used the words the grid several times in this short interview. Interview, and we might as well plug a book that we've been discussing: The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future by Dr. Gretchen Backe. And I'll probably reference a few facts in Dr. Backe's book. But the topic she writes about there is exactly that. We have this grid, the utilities that we pay for the delivery of our power, the whole structure is based on a hundred-year-old approach to things, and yet it's clear. As you point out, that Americans are rejecting wires in in almost every way we can, and we like to take our power with us, and now we're doing it in electric vehicles. And these things are very well facilitated by lithium, this lightest of all metals highest energy density of all metals, and the batteries are just keep getting better and better. And as of this moment, I think you're right, Ellis. If the grid goes down, we suffer immediately and profoundly for the duration of the blackout. We're lighting candles and what have you. But energy storage is on its way. And right now, as Dr. Bakke says in her book, 95% of so-called grid storage is pumped hydro, i.e. we, we pump water up into a lake in the mountains, which we can then use its potential energy to run turbines and store power that way. But really, there are no large-scale grid storage batteries just yet. There's a big one outside of Fairbanks that Dr. Baki writes about and others in development. But what's exciting is lithium being so lightweight, having such energy density, can not only help us store energy, as they do with the Tesla Power Wall, which is now being sold, of course. But we can take it with us, and that's where it's so important. And I think that electric vehicles are going to integrate more into our future super grids and smart grids than even we realize right now.
2: Will the Tesla Power Walls or inbuilt structures of that nature potentially remove us from the grid, which essentially was set up or may have become a monopoly to control the distribution of electricity, funneling funds into the coffers of the individuals and the consortiums who own the power plants?
8: You know, I think consumers, and especially those who are are big on technology, they don't want to be locked in place by access to power. And we've already hinted at that subject. We want to be mobile. We want to be wireless. And something like the Powerwall, as I understand it, really doesn't give you the ability to go off-grid. But what it does is it gives you a few minutes up to a few hours to redistribute when you make power, when you store it, and when you use it. So, for instance, you can make power on your roof with solar cells, store that for off-peak use, for instance. And those sorts of Things. And in fact, what we learn when we really study the grid is there's more to it than that. There's huge problems with surges of power when we don't need it. For instance, in the middle of the day when solar is running at full speed, of course, that creates a whole lot of energy and that in effect becomes surplus. So, what we really need is a more creative way to look at the grid, the business of managing our grid, and really that allows entrepreneurship and creativity to kick in. And perhaps the most interesting thing we see going on are not only the uses of things things like Tesla's Powerwall, but experimentations with microgrids and so-called nanogrids where we see communities, universities, research centers integrating all possible and varied ways of making and storing power, cogeneration. Anytime there's some heat in a process, we can capture that and use some of that to generate some power. We can use solar and wind, and of course, we can interact with the grid as well. But that makes this miniature grid, this nano grid, that much more redundant. And, of course, it can begat savings for the users of these nano grids as well. And that's some of the neatest things that are going on right now that we can read about in Dr. Bakke's book. We see the experiments going on by the Department of Defense, various universities that can not only be self-sufficient for significant periods of time, but they can conserve energy and, in fact, of course, can sell energy back to the grid. But I think the big question is, Can the grid in the United States modernize? Can the business of managing that grid modernize enough to really maximize these things so that... That super future that we are all hoping for can really come to pass.
2: Then, doesn't this archaic grid eventually become obsolete as some of these micro, mini, or community grids are set up around the country? Will we see a wireless electric world where you're passing through an area perhaps by motor vehicle or otherwise and all of your devices are powered up much like cell phone services connected as you travel through the air?
8: I think you're right, Ellis. I think that the concepts of the business of utilities and how they price power, and how they maintain the infrastructure have to be rethought. And what you're touching on are some of the concepts like wireless power transmission and electric vehicles basically being batteries on wheels. And of course, very smart computers, as we know, if you take a look at the new Tesla Model S or Model X today, the onboard computer power is spectacular. And here you have this battery on wheels passing through, obviously, fields of energy, and if power transmission is wireless or going in that direction it certainly changes things and we know the business has to change but let's not forget A man named Nikola Tesla actually demonstrated the potential of transmitting power without wires over 120 years ago in 1893. He did that by lighting three light bulbs from more than 100 feet away. And that's pretty impressive stuff that uh, 120 years ago, we demonstrated the theory behind something could be done. And now we're seeing the entrepreneurs... The Silicon Valley billionaires and others thinking of ways to uh, accomplish things that allow us to take our power with us. And I think electric vehicles with their lithium batteries on board are going to be a big part of that. And Dr. Baki writes about that. Virtually every concept for a future grid that facilitates renewable sources of energy with variable rates of generation, all of those really rely, in some level, on electric vehicles. That is, these batteries on wheels being plugged in and then being transported from point A to point B. A person goes home from work, they take their power with them when they drive their electric vehicle home, plug it in at a different point, and then, of course, it can be used by these smart grids to uh, regulate power flow. And I think that's key, Alice. I think too many of us think of the grid and the utilities behind it as defining our electrical industry in this country, for instance. And, in fact, I think those definitions have to change a little bit, but we're certainly going to need companies out there that are delivering power, managing infrastructure, perhaps a different type of infrastructure indeed, but doing something that allows us to make use of technologies like lithium batteries to their full potential, rather than just sort of nibbling around the edges like we're doing right now.
2: Of course, we're going to need companies to provide lithium. Is there enough in the ground, and is lithium the new gold? As investors, where should we consider putting our money right now?
8: Well, the resource industry has always got exciting new stories, a a big new gold discovery, a a big new lithium discovery, and and I believe that that sort of excitement can drive entrepreneurialism and experimentation and and R&D. In the case of lithium, you know, there was just a Washington Post article that called it white gold. The Wall Street Journal called it white petroleum. That one doesn't really roll off the tongue, but that was one that happened earlier in 2016. But certainly there's this excitement and sort of hype sometimes around this commodity. But I can tell you this, having spoken with other executives in the lithium industry, not many of us really believe that this grid storage concept or even the full potential of electric vehicles has been factored into our models of supply and demand. But I can tell you this. While that's exciting for price, maybe in the near to medium term, in other words, a a strong demand and maybe not quite enough supply to get there just yet, certainly driving prices higher, and we see that today. However, over the long term, geologically, we know there's lots of lithium out there. We have to find new and better ways to extract it. We need to do so at a lower cost, so a new operation built today can withstand the price cycles that are inevitable. But we also need to do it in a sustainable way so that we're extracting lithium with a minimal impact on our water resources, working closely with the communities in which we operate, and, of course, mitigating uh, air quality and other environmental issues that can happen around these large mining operations, whether they be brine or hard rock. So I think geologically there's plenty of lithium, Alice. I really believe that. However, it's certainly true that the incumbent producers have not been very good at bringing new production online, and I think the evidence for that is the rising prices. But, of course, the good news there is that many of us are rushing out to make make new discoveries, and to demonstrate their potential economics, and in fact, to get new projects built. And we have seen a couple of juniors come online with new lithium production over the last few years, and I think that's a good sign. And I think there's more of that to come, and I think from Dr. Bakke's book and other sort of timely media stuff out there right now. There are exciting times ahead for lithium's role in our grid and certainly in energy storage and most definitely in electric vehicles.
2: We have the Obama administration transitioning out and the Trump administration on deck. Let's talk about energy and lithium competing in a space that is very broad and a politique that will be very diverse.
8: Those are uh, big questions, hard questions. But, you know, I've been in the mining industry for about 27 years now, and I've seen administrations come and go. I've worked in over 30 countries around the world. Sometimes for political reasons, we chose to be in or out of certain countries. In this case, the United States, we have a robust, healthy mining industry in in some sectors. However, we have been burdened with regulations. Many would say that the sheer quantity and detail in the regulations has imposed a burden and has at least slowed things down, and that's certainly evidenced in how long It takes to get things permitted. So, I think if we look at the last few years, the outgoing administration now, we do see a higher degree of regulations, some of which may have been needed, many of which probably were overkill or perhaps redundant. And so, that's one element. The other, however, with something like lithium, is we have a potential green energy related commodity here that there's only one producer in all of North America. That's our neighbor, of course, in Clayton Valley, Albemarle Corporation, at their Silver Peak mine. And yet we have a lot of resources of lithium in this country and in Canada, and yet those haven't been brought online or have been uh, slow to come online or slow to be developed. So there have been some incentives, as you know. We don't think the lithium industry, per se, needs a whole lot of subsidies from the government. But what we do need is a facilitative government, a facilitative permitting environment that allows us to get after these deposits, make these discoveries, and advance them through the various milestones and towards production, and we believe that's important, and we believe a streamlining of regulations, as proposed by the incoming Trump administration, sounds attractive, and at the same time, it's clear that there's a momentum perhaps against a lot of government subsidies and things like that, but I think we in the mining industry have already learned our lessons in that regard. If you can't build a project that's economic through the price cycle, then you're likely to destroy value for your investors. And so at Pure Energy, our focus has been on cost-effective lithium production, the ability to get an operation into production that can weather the price cycles and I think that's key for any future mining developments whether they be large companies or small companies paying attention to the bottom line now it's certainly true that an administration in favor of green energy can make things move a little faster in some areas and can streamline regulations but by and large look at the value brought to investors the jobs created the expansion of the tax base when a new operation goes into production and that sort of thing and I think for the most part the lithium industry is modern we can adapt to the changing administrations in Washington or we whichever national capital, and of course, the uh, funds to do exploration and development do move around the world and that pendulum swings based on the administration in place, as we've seen recently in Argentina, for instance, with the MACRI administration coming in there, creating perhaps a more attractive geopolitical environment for investment there than has been the case in the recent few years. So these changes happen, and it just so happens that one of the uh, exciting elements of lithium is its topical nature as it relates to environmentally sustainable energy sources. So perhaps there's a little more spotlight on us at the moment, but I don't see this too much different than the rest of the mining industry in that regard.
2: Patrick, once again, another enlightening conversation with you. Thanks again for joining me today in the program. Thank you again. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website,
1: ellismartinreport.com. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a recent
2: conversation with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Canalaska is an exploration company in Canada's Athabasca Basin, known for some of the highest grades of uranium in the world with 18 projects of their own, holding one of the largest land positions in the region, comprising of up to 1,800 square miles. Canalaska shares a joint venture With the major uranium producer, Cameco. Today, Mr. Dazzler joins me from the Vancouver Resource Investment
9: Conference. Peter, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. Good to be back again. Uh, The show looks pretty lively here today. It looks very good. This is a very nice turnout at the Vancouver Resource
2: Investment Conference. I'd like to speak with you about the strategy with regard to the major producers around
9: the world in uranium, Cameco for one. They've pulled back quite a bit, which is actually a very, very good thing for the market, isn't it? Yes. The market responded as soon as they said that they were going to do a shutdown during the summertime. And then following that, we saw Kazakhstan say they're going to do a 10% drop in uranium production. The market saw that. We've seen an increase in price for the three weeks since then, and I think we'll continue to see that. Now, what's new with regard to the ever-changing but upwardly mobile diamond story in Alaska? While we had the beers very active on the ground last year. They gave the property back to us. When we look at the targets, a lot of those very large targets broke up into much smaller targets, and personally, I think that's one of the reasons why they went on to other projects. But we do have a series of targets there that we still believe are Kimberlites, and off to the west in Alberta, we have over 60 targets which have a slightly different character, but again, they look like kimberlite. So I think this is a continuing story. It's not our main focus. Our main focus is uranium, but this comes along because we work in the Athabasca and these targets uh, do look like kimberlites. Now, I know we touched upon this before, but it's it's always good
2: to discuss again uh, with a new economy in the U.S. and Canada and perhaps around the world and uh, a clean tech, green tech uh, methodology that is just going to grow in strength, especially with China ramping up their nuclear capabilities with
9: regard to energy, how does that look for Canalaska coming down the road? Well, with Kent Alaska, we've got a large number of mining properties in the Athabasca Basin. We have some of the largest land blocks in the eastern side of the basin, and those land blocks cover ground that we think could host large uranium deposits. We've worked on them with Mitsubishi Corporation. We're currently working with Kamico Corporation. We've got four Korean corporations working with us on those, and we've got Denison, and going off to drill some targets. These projects were things that we really focused on before Fukushima. We've slowed down since then, while the market is saying, do we want uranium? We now see that the market is asking for more uranium. Prices are moving up. Analysts are talking about the demand that's out there that's going to completely outstrip supply over the next 12, 18 months. So these projects we put a lot of money into are becoming more and more valuable every day. And so our company is growing every day. What do you you think about the strategy in the U.S. with regards to nuclear energy? Is it now full throttle ahead? Well, for some time there has been a nuclear agenda in the United States. There are five nuclear power plants being built right now. There are brand new power, uh, nuclear power plants being turned on, but there are about 36 nuclear power plants that have been on the drawing board for the last six or seven years, and I think you're going to see movement on them. You're also seeing movement on the small modular reactors with design, plans in Idaho for a, a modular reactor coming on fairly soon, and one in Tennessee.
2: So these are sort of micro-reactors,
9: if you will. Might we see some of these in some of the mid to smaller cities around the continent? These modular reactors can run a small city. They'll be very useful for isolated communities. In fact, they would run several communities, 50, 60, 100 megawatt capacity, rather than one gigawatt to a one and a half gigawatt capacity.
2: Now, nothing else in the energy sector really compares to the efficiency of the use and the affordability of nuclear energy.
9: Nuclear energy is here to stay. Uh, it's the base load in many countries. In the U.S., it's running uh, close to 20%. In Ontario, is running well over 30%. And in France, it's well over 85%. It's continuous supply of clean electricity, which keeps your factories running. There is no interruption to supply. Your equipment runs at the correct speed because you don't have brownout fluctuations. Now, Peter, you've been attending these resource investment conferences for quite a long time. What are you noticing differently about this one in particular? Everybody is uh, looking for a bull market in resources. I see it. I sense it. I've seen this for 25 years. Every now and again, the markets say we're undersupplied in this mineral or that mineral. We've had such a tough time over the last five, six years in all commodities. People are saying this is going to catch up. And people are now looking to invest early in the inexpensive stocks that are out there, the ones that have growth potential.
2: Peter, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I wish you all the best at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Thank you so much for joining me again today. Thank you very much, Alice. I've been speaking with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of CanAlaska Uranium, trading in the U.S. as CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Look for CanAlaska's logo on our homepage and click through to their website and listen to the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes and
1: on your TuneIn Radio app. Until next time, invest wisely. I'm Ellis Martin. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program, brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel.